everyone, and welcome to the Twelfth Night podcast produced by Rose City Shakespeare. Today we're going to do a bonus episode, and we're talking about boundaries. We're talking about boundaries in Twelfth Night. We're talking about boundaries in staging Twelfth Night. And we're talking about how those boundaries can actually bring us to greater creativity and a more nuanced understanding of the text. And to discuss this really fun topic with me, I have Christina Ramos, uh, who we get to call Cha. And Christina, please introduce yourself. Well, hi, everyone. I'm so, so glad to be here. Uh, as, as we've already said, uh, my name is Christina Ramos, but I do go by Cha. I am an actor as well as a movement director and designer, uh, focusing quite a bit on both violence and intimacy design for the theater. And that's where my focus is. I'm also a dramaturg and I bring sort of my knowledge from each of those spaces to each of those other spaces as much as possible. All right, that's that's just fantastic. And you and I, you know, had a discussion before I brought you in to be part of our discussion group, which is uh, has many people that you will all get to hear from. And we were having a discussion about intimacy design and choreography. And we were talking specifically about the scenes between Sebastian and Antonio and how that has to be such a nuanced choice that the actor is making, that the director is making, and how much the choice of what kind of physical contact they have, how much that affects, in many ways, the whole meaning of the production. Um, I'm going to ramble a little bit here about Antonio here, because I feel like it's important for context. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to ramble about him, too. So when I the first time that I was really studying Twelfth Night, I had heard that there it was possible that Antonio and Sebastian had a romantic relationship and that it was possible that Antonio was gay or bi in any event had romantic feelings possibly towards men, not heterosexual. And at the time I thought, oh, well, you know, everybody wants to see stuff in Shakespeare that isn't necessarily there. It's kind of all the rage right now. And then I I really read the play and I really did my dramaturgy and I went, oh my God, poor Antonio. He's such a romantic. He's clearly in love with Sebastian. He clearly, you know, he, he says it over and over again. Oh, my God, this beautiful, beautiful form. It, it's lied to me, and I'm, I'm just desperately in love with it, and now it's hurt me terribly. And my heart just goes out to Antonio because, as far as I'm concerned, he is the only embodiment of real love. In the whole play, everybody else has conditions and expectations and, you know, they want money or position. You know, it's all these kinds of intense negotiations. And Antonio just just loves. So tell me about how you discovered Antonio and, and did he have a similar or different impact on you? Yeah, I think when I first read the play, so much of my focus was on Viola, 
I think because I was reading it from the perspective of an actor and I was thinking I could get cast as Viola. Sure. <laughs> um, and then as I was rereading it recently, actually, with more of a perspective towards movement and physicality and intimacy between every sort of character group that we encounter, I think I saw similar to what you did, an Antonio who is deeply in love with Sebastian. And now I think similarly, for me, any movement discipline, any movement that you bring into your rehearsal space, any intimacy that you bring into the dramaturgy of your play has to be a collaborative effort, has to be something that everyone is on board with. And so I think there is a world in which Antonio's deep, deep love for Sebastian, which is in the text, is a filial love. I think that that is an option. Mm -hmm. But as I was reading it, I felt more like what an opportunity to show a romantic love in the course of this play that comes from a space of knowing each other very well, of working together, of having a relationship of depth and knowledge of one another what an interesting juxtaposition dramaturgically to the other love affairs that are happening. And so to me, I think there's an opportunity there that should not be overlooked. And I think it's exciting. I think it's tantalizing to think that perhaps that's what this relationship was always meant to be. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's in the text the way that it is. And I'm sure we'll get into the details of this more as we continue talking, but that's why it becomes extremely important that the creative team and the actors who are telling the story know what story they're telling and are on board for that story Absolutely. because it will change the play. Absolutely. It, it will, because it changes the definition of love for the play. And I think you're absolutely right in that even if it's not played as a romantic love between the two, it's still a pure love. It's still, for whatever reason, Antonio is willing to be arrested. He's willing to risk his life. He's willing to fight for Sebastian. And he's just, he's just got the purest heart, even though, even though he's a pirate. I, <laughs> Pirates with a heart of gold, my favorite character right, trope. Right, right. Just the best, just the best. So there's quite a few scenes with Antonia and Sebastian where we really have opportunities for intimacy. They're intimate scenes already, and we can decide how physical we want that intimacy to be. And after we've made those choices about the kind of relationship that they have, and again, I want to make very, very clear to anyone listening that anyone who produces Shakespeare I love you. Please keep doing it. I don't, whatever choices you make, if you make Shakespeare with parrots just squawking all the time, I'm happy. Just produce Shakespeare, please. I'm totally happy with it. So whatever choices you make, uh, totally good. But I, I was in a situation where I had two actors and they were not comfortable kissing. We had chosen a romantic connection between the two and they weren't comfortable kissing and they were even a little nervous 
to tell me about that. So, um, I eventually we came to a solution that that worked great. We didn't need any kissing, and you know, it's really funnier and more poignant if one person is leaning in for a kiss and the other one acts like they never saw it, or they really didn't see it. You know, just so busy talking about themselves, whatever. But I'm wondering, how do you elicit from an actor the boundaries that they have? And then once you have those boundaries in hand, what kind of creative impetus does that give you? Is that a gift for you? Does it feel limiting or does it feel more expansive actually to have that kind of structure? I mean, I think first and foremost that if you create a space that is fundamentally collaborative from the get-go, usually your actors will feel empowered to talk to you about the story and talk to you about where they feel comfortable sitting in that story. That being said, Many actors, myself included, have grown up in a yes and culture. And it's very hard, especially in social hierarchies like talking to your director, to sort of undo those learned responses of yes and always, always, always. And so one of the things I do, which you so eloquently put, is I really do try to think of the boundaries that my actors have as opportunities to get more creative, to think more expansively, to not take the easy road. I, I think in my own work in movement, uh, both in violence and in intimacy, as well as sometimes when I work on dance, we as creatives, shockingly, tend to go for the easy storytelling thing, the the kiss, the punch, the whatever it may be that we know works or we think works and we want to go for that. But that actually when we don't have that at our disposal, when an actor tells us I'm not comfortable with this, now we creatives have to think creatively. And it's so exciting to be able to work with the actors, to come up with physicality that feels right in their body, feels comfortable, feels safe, that tells the story we wanna tell. So it ultimately, to me, both makes my job more fun, but also I think because audiences can sense the comfort level in their actors, can really feel whether they feel natural in what they're doing. A moment like Antonio reaching for Sebastian's hand and Sebastian unwittingly pulling it away. Because the actors are comfortable with that, the audience feels it much more deeply than if we had them kiss and both actors were tense oh around the Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Like because otherwise we're... And this is why I'm often uncomfortable with nudity on stage. Not because, 
you know, like I'm uncomfortable with naked people, but because so often the actors, even with the very best of their intentions, they're, most of us are not comfortable standing on stage naked and our bodies will tell tales on us and we will stand in ways that make it clear that we feel vulnerable because we freaking are in that situation psychologically at, at least. And so I think it's a distraction because it takes us completely out of the story when we're all of a sudden thinking about the actors and that the actors might be uncomfortable. We become worried for them. So I think that's absolutely And not to mention, and not to mention, you know, I think it's a simultaneous action where because in a theater space, we're all physically in space together literally our heartbeats are sinking up, our breath is sinking up. So the audience is feeling and responding to the breath of the actor. But also your actor, who is now uncomfortable, is not deeply in character, is not saying the lines with the same gravitas and connection that you know they're capable of. And so you've divorced the actor from their character and you've divorced the audience from the story. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you can make a more exciting stage picture where everyone's breath is connected just by honoring and inviting the boundaries of your actors. Absolutely. And gosh, uh, for my listeners, we're currently in August of 2020. We're dealing with the COVID pandemic and all of our theaters are shut down. And so all of our discussion about physical spaces and touch and kissing and everything is really poignant because we can't, we can't do any of that right now. You know, it doesn't. (laughs) But all that aside, I feel like even in the audio productions that that I do. Actors who do voiceover work, they often put themselves in the physical attitudes and positions and everything else that their character would, because your your voice sounds different if you're lying down, if you're standing up, if you're seated, if you're, you know, all of that. And so I think understanding these boundaries and even you know, respecting those boundaries, even when the characters are, you know, the actors are maybe hundreds of miles away from each other. I think that those are still really reasonable discussions to have. Because, you know, I could throw in audio sound effects of a kiss and have the voiceover actors who did it be uncomfortable with that and feel embarrassed about even telling me (laughs) about it. So Mm -hmm. I still feel like it's really important to have these kinds of discussions with our actors about how would you want to do it if we were all in the same room and still thinking about that when, you know, we're doing these online performances and these audio performances and stuff like that. Um, Twelfth Night itself has so many boundary issues. And I realize we could take any play, let alone any Shakespeare, and say, oh, it's all about boundaries. But Twelfth Night really, really is 
about boundaries. And part of that is because Twelfth Night itself was a carnival time. It was a time to trespass boundaries, to switch boundaries, to switch roles and everything else. And so throughout this whole play, everyone is testing each other's boundaries the entire time. And that's what makes it so fun. And I think is part of what makes farces fun overall are you know are those constant little oop did that person step over that boundary oh they did oh what's going to happen next blah 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 so really the very first boundary that we see is olivia's boundary orsino is unhappy because olivia has put up a boundary and what do you think that that boundary says to people in terms of that this is a woman defining her romantic and sexual boundaries? Like, how often do we get to see that anywhere? It's, it's, so, it's so refreshing, especially because I very much read Olivia's boundary as one that she has put up because she has had to, mm-hmm. right? As Orsino is, if not stalking her, yeah. at least very persistent in a way that she has consistently said no thank you to. Mm-hmm. So that we're at a point in the story when we begin the play where it's much bigger than no thank you. Yes. <laughs> because she has tried to be kind, you know? And so I think it's a very exciting thing to play with of what what has led up to this boundary you know something in my in my own research on boundaries and boundary making one of the things I find fascinating is usually there are two ways that people form boundaries one is sort of an inherent boundary a boundary you know is your boundary and you can state it clearly and you know what it is and the other kind is one that makes itself known to you when someone crosses it right? So you didn't know you had a boundary mm-hmm. and then someone crossed it and you're like, Ooh, there's a line there. And so it makes me wonder what was that moment for Olivia? Mm-hmm. What was the moment where Orsino went too far mm-hmm. that leads to the beginning of this play that leads to our setup? And how can we collaborate with our actors on what that means when they're physically in space together? Mm-hmm right? How, how are they physically responding to each other's body language, given whatever has led up to this moment of, you are cut off from me, sir? Yes, yes. And, you know, given that he would have, you know, we know that he's higher rank than her. And so not only is she denying a man, but she's denying her lord, rights over her body. And we know that they're reasonably close to each other geographically because Festi goes back and forth, no problem. Viola goes back and forth, no problem. And so given that they both grew up in those households, we have to, or rather, I have always kind of assumed that they've known each other for a long time, very possibly since childhood. And, you know, the people that we grow up with I think we very rarely have romantic feelings about later in life. I I know it happens, but I can imagine 
that it's possible, and I'm not saying it has to be this way, but I can certainly imagine that it's possible that Olivia has known Orsino for years and had already decided no <laughs> before she was even in puberty. You know, like she may have already decided he was annoying and pushy. And, you know, here's Orsino possibly with the opposite thought from the time they were children thinking, oh, there's Olivia and, and I love her and she's so pretty and someday we're going to get married and him chasing her around and trying to kiss her and her pushing him off. You know, all of that whole dynamic is a possibility. And then, you know, maybe he's getting ready to propose and her mother dies. I'm like, oh, well, I have to wait. She's in mourning. And then her father dies and he's like, oh, well, I, I guess I'll have to ask her brother. Oh, whoopsie. And then he's got to ask her. And any of those other people might have said yes for her. Yep. So if they had known each other for a long time, then surely this would have come as a shock to him that she even could say no at all. And you know, who knows, it could have been in a letter, it could have been the fact that maybe he sent Valentine, who, you know, is obviously like the personification of love. She even said no to the personification of love where Orsino was concerned. And at that point, if he goes himself directly and asks her, it could be in order at that point, like she might be unable legally to refuse him yeah. at that point. So in that sense, I, I appreciate Orsino in that even though he could literally have pulled rank on her, um, very possibly even abduct, abducted her and forced her to, to marry him, he doesn't do those things. You know, he, he really does want her to want him. So um, bravo for Orsino for that, because I try to find the things I can admire in him, because, you know, he's kind of a... Kind of a dweeb. Yeah, he can, he can be a little tough. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think that brings up a good point, which is it's really important to keep in mind the hierarchical structures mm -hmm. throughout this play, particularly with class and with what people are taking advantage of in one another and what they're not. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we talk about those things, something I want to slip in here is that whenever I work with actors on talking about these scenes of sort of heightened physicality, whether it be violence or intimacy, I'm always sure to talk about the characters in third person mm -hmm. because it can get real dicey when you're like, well, I could have just taken you by force and I didn't, Ooh. right? Yeah. Rather than <laughs> Orsino could take Olivia by force and he doesn't. Yes. It's a, it's a very different conversation. It's a much more collaborative conversation. And so that's just a tip that I want to throw in there Thank around you. how powerful the language we use is, right? Very how powerful important. the language we use is when we talk about these things in a rehearsal space. Um, 
because because they are fraught. I mean, all of the relationships in this play have hierarchical status mm-hmm. things happening that should be talked about in our in our conversations about what their relationships are. Um, and it can get hairy. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other level of boundaries that had not even occurred to me, is that boundary between the performer and the character is so important to maintain when you're talking about these really delicate negotiations. Um, it's... Like I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, way back in the day when I was um, getting counseling in the 70s uh, as a teenager. And, you know, the idea of boundaries had barely even been formed at that point. Like it wasn't even a word in the 70s. Nobody had boundaries. Nobody knew what boundaries were. The idea was to break down the boundaries and, you know, everybody mm-hmm. get into each other's space. And if you weren't completely honest, you were withholding and all kinds of like really um, interesting mindset from our perspective today. But one of the things that they did impress upon us over and over was the use of I statements of saying, um, I was upset when this happened rather than you made me upset when that happens. It it, it gives us a little mm-hmm. boundary to take ownership of our own emotions. And so when we're talking about boundaries as actors and the roles that they're playing, especially for actors who are not really used to, as you said, saying no. Mm-hmm. recognizing that that boundary between themselves and their character is is honorable and important and that they can use that in the conversation, that they can say something like, okay, look, I know Antonio wouldn't mind, but I I mind and I'm in, a, in performing that role. We need to find a way that Antonio minds doing that or, or whatever it is. Am I blathering? I'm sorry. <laughs> Does no, it's, it's a really good point. And it's something that I think that's why I always sort of harp on the idea of your actors as collaborative partners, because they know the role sometimes way better than a director can know each individual role. And so they can speak from inside Absolutely. it in a really enlightened and embodied way. So they can say something like, I think Antonio is in love with Sebastian. Mm -hmm. I, the actor, am not comfortable kissing my fellow actor, but I'm excited to explore ways that we can show that Antonio is in love. So what, what do we got? What can we do, right? Like that conversation can really happen and be so exciting. And it's these little things like language in the room of saying Antonio is in love with Sebastian. How can we show that? Mm-hmm. rather than saying, I'm in love with you, right? Like just that little <laughs> oh adjustment <gosh>. yes. <laughs> allows for so much more actual, actionable conversation yes. around how we tell the story together, you know? So if we have, you know, and, and I imagine that, you know, if uh, if we're lucky, we have some directors listening, but sheer proportions, there's always more actors than directors. And so how 
would you counsel an actor? Let's say we have a director, and they mean well, but they tend to be a bit of a steamroller. And, you know, maybe they never have any fears for their own personal space or their own personal boundaries. You know, perhaps they've just led kind of a, a, a very fortunate life in that regard. Uh, we won't say which gender <laughs> we think that would be, but... <laughs> Let's say you have a director that means well, but is somewhat clueless about these things. How would you counsel an actor to bring that up in such a way that the director understands that this is an opening in a conversation, not an actor coming to them and saying, hey, you're doing this wrong? Yeah, I think that's an especially important question with Shakespeare, because something that happens with the bard and how long his work has been around and how much we regard it in our, you know, Western theatrical community is that there are actors who have done Twelfth Night a hundred times mm -hmm. working with a director who has never done it before. And, and the feeling of knowing this play and knowing it well can actually lead to actors truly saying things like you're doing this wrong. <laughs> Um, oh and you, you'd be surprised, uh, in terms of, I've been in rooms like that where I've had an actor say, no, that's wrong. And I think, you know, my own education with Shakespeare is much like what you were saying earlier in your introduction, which is if you're playing with it, if you're in the weeds with it, you're doing it. Like, let's just do more of it. Um, and I think you'd be surprised actually in rooms in terms of the gender breakdown of, I think the reality is most of us don't have boundary education. Mm. Um, and most of us are learning these things for the first time. Mm -hmm. And many of us feel threatened by it for all the right reasons of, I don't wanna be stepped on in this room, right? I don't want my boundaries stepped on. So, you know, for me, it's very much about I'm a dramaturg. It's about language, right? For me, it's about how we talk about boundaries in the room, how we talk about the story we're trying to tell so that we never take the actor's agency and autonomy of their body away from them ever. But we also never take creative agency away from the director, right? Mm -hmm. Those things can coexist beautifully. Absolutely. And the more we think about the language we use in the room and say things like, I, the director, want to tell this story. How can we do it in a way that works for you? Or I, the actor, am not comfortable with this telling of the story. What's our compromise, mm -hmm. right? That the more we talk about each of our desires and what we can and cannot do and bring to the table, the more opportunities we have to make something great and exciting. Now, granted, that's a very uh, <laughs> silver linings approach. We got to start somewhere. We got to aim for something. Happen. Yeah, <laughs> we got to aim for something. But, uh, you know, I, what I'm picturing is, um, you know, a, a director, and you're absolutely right, anyone of any gender can feel besieged in a situation, can feel challenged in a situation. And 
have had bad experiences in the past that makes them feel already defensive before they even walked into the room. So, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say we've got some director and they're just going blah, 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 blah. And then Antonio kisses Sebastian. That's all fine with you all, right? Or doesn't even say that. Just says, okay, Antonio, kiss Sebastian now. How do we talk to that director? Like, I mean, seriously, like this is this is honestly one of the reasons I'm not an actor. Like, I do not feel comfortable in that situation, and I'm when I have spoken up, you know, in any kind of life situation, and said, "Hey, um, you know, I I'm not really comfortable with that." Sometimes terrible consequences come as a result of of declaring those boundaries. So is there a language that we can use? Can we just say something like, hey, um, can we consider another way to tell the story? Like, how do you, I mean, and I realize by the time they've called in and intimacy and, and combat choreographer, They've already got that in their heads. But surely you have met people who had not hired someone and that you know they desperately need to. Like, how do you start that conversation? Yeah, it's a great question and a tough one. I think first and foremost, I echo you in that our actors are simultaneously the most vulnerable and the most courageous people it, it's so hard. It's such hard work. And, and there are still so many spaces and so many barriers to these kinds of conversations. I think for me, the biggest like tip slash trick is time. So I always advocate for time. So in that moment, I as an actor or what I would tell an actor friend who came to me with that situation is ask for time because usually that doesn't threaten the director or their vision, but it allows you to have a conversation with the director privately or have a conversation with stage management. If you need to stage managers are our best friends, love stage managers, Uh, but just saying, Oh, okay. There's a kiss there. Can we not do the kiss today? Can we hold on on actually doing the kiss? Just giving yourself time. Almost always, the director will be like, of course, we'll wait till tomorrow or we'll wait till next week or whenever you're ready, we'll do the kiss. And that gives you time to actually think about what your boundaries are, get specific about them and talk to the director about them or talk to stage management if you need a mediator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but that time oh is my gosh. so That is the useful. best advice, Cha. That is wonderful. I, I, <sighs> that is fantastic. And you're absolutely right. It, it, I feel like, you know, we get so pressured for time especially during a rehearsal process, there's never enough time to do anything that even the thought of just asking for time for something is like this revolutionary idea. So that is fantastic. I love that. And I do think speaking to that time is one of the ways that we inadvertently step on each other's boundaries Mm -hmm. by asking for answers now 
that's one way that we can sort of undermine our own ways of thinking and say, actually, I don't need to know right now. Here's a concept I have, sleep on it, bring it into the room tomorrow, right? It's a way that we hinder each other and ourselves in this you know, grind and, mm-hmm. and work of the rehearsal room. Uh, I think that's a really valuable insight. And it, because time is really the raw stuff that we are making theater out of, you cannot make good theater without investing time in it. And to think about wise uses of that time, um, and especially to respect each other's time. If the rehearsal says it's going to end at 8 p.m., that rehearsal needs to end at 8 p.m. It's not, (laughs) you know, the show must not go on at that point. You have to stop. You have to let people go home. You have to let them, you know, send their babysitters home and feed their dogs. And, you know, just to have that space and time to themselves that you had promised them. So I think personally that is one of the very worst sins that a director can commit is to keep actors past time when they said they could go home. And I think that it is absolutely okay for actors to say, no, I'm going home. This is the, this is the schedule. And whether that's online especially if it's online. We have the feeling like these Zoom calls, these Zoom performances are somehow that they're not any work. And they are work. And so if somebody is consistently ignoring their own time boundaries that they said that they were going to stick to, then personally, I'm going to walk at that point. I'm not telling you what to do, but uh, all we have is time anymore. And nobody can give us back time that they took from us. It's really the ultimate theft. So, gosh, what a concept to think of time as such an important boundary to maintain and to use that as a tool for maintaining physical boundaries and emotional boundaries and all of that. I I just think that's a wonderful insight, Cha. Thank you. Of course. I also, I just want to add that, um, I want to add that I'm currently in the process of developing a class. I'm sort of beta testing it right now around literally creating a time and a space for actors to discover their boundaries. Mm. Because I think part of the reason time is important in these kinds of conversations, when a director says to you, okay, now you kiss to ask for time is because again, in a culture of yes. And so many of us don't even know what our boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And in the moment, we might say yes, just to keep the flow going, right? To sure. keep the rehearsal flow. And so asking for that time so that you can leave rehearsal at 8 p.m. and go home and take a bath and have a tea and think about the kiss and consider it and then come back with a real understanding of where you stand and what you need to be able to tell your story well. I think that that is so fundamental and something that we just don't have in our industry currently is time to discover what our boundaries are. And so, you know, I think not only is it about respecting 
your time to rest and be a human outside of rehearsal. And Zoom is a whole other thing because I have very intense boundaries around Zoom because it actually takes more energy from me than a, than a live rehearsal room. But that time is not just about rest. It's also about discovering yourself, discovering what you need to work well. It's about processing realizations, experiences that you had, and we need time to do that. We need time to bake that bread, you know. Mm-hmm. We can't go through that process instantaneously, like it's top ramen, you know. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta need those thoughts, we gotta let those thoughts rise, we gotta bake them, and sleep like sleep is the most amazing thing, like that time to sleep and to give our brains time to do that deep processing work that we just can't do when we're awake. There are so many decisions, so many things that sometimes I'll feel anxious about or feel internal pressure to come up with a decision and a choice right away. And one of the best things that's ever happened to me was the realization that I can just put that whole conundrum away and literally sleep on it, that sleeping on something actually does make it work. And if Mm -hmm. you are in a situation, especially with a director, and, you know, the director has one idea that they're barreling towards, and you just find out about that from the director, because you can't read the director's mind you know, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a kiss. And the director is like, yeah, there's a kiss. Did you not think there would be a kiss? You know, like all of a sudden, like you've got two people with their worldviews suddenly challenged. And so that time, it gives the director also time to think about, oh, this isn't an automatic thing. And you know, even initially, they may go to sleep and be angry about it and frustrated and thinking, they may wake up and be like, Oh, well, of course, okay, they don't have to kiss, whatever. So (laughs) that's, that's just such a valuable insight to have. I really appreciate that. And so you're going to be offering a class to actors to how to create those time boundaries. Okay, so what we're going to do is we will talk about that at the end of the, towards the end of the podcast. And then is this something that's only going to be offered live? Or are people going to be able to watch it later? Because, you know, with any luck, this podcast will live far longer than we do. And they might really be interested in that information, even though the workshop has passed. Yeah, so the 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 class workshop that I'm developing is really designed for this Zoom COVID world that we're living in. Mm-hmm. It's very much based in movement, uh, movement warm-ups and guided meditation and designed so that you have your camera off and I'm leading you through a discovery and thinking about what's possible for you both from an intimacy intimacy perspective, but also from just a physical, what are your, what is your range of movement, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in the design process now, sort of planning to test it in the next weeks with a few friends of mine who, you know, I trust and respect and who I do this work with. And then depending on the feedback I get, 
you know, expanded it out, but it would be very much designed to be live for sure, but that I could teach the class multiple times with different groups and you could even come back and do it again because boundaries change. They do. Et cetera, et cetera. They do. They sure do. They do. They change. Uh, They shift. I think that is incredibly exciting. And so I'm in the, I'm not going to say that because at some point, let me think about this. So there will be a website for the podcast. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the web the website is up and running. But there will be links to Cha's uh, workshops and, and other work, way to get a hold of her, um, ways to get a hold of her if you'd like to consult with her for other things. And and so we will get to that in in a bit and towards the end of the podcast. Um, so... Let's go back to Twelfth Night and thinking about these different boundaries. And so we've got that first one between Olivia and Arsino. And then we've got what I feel like is another boundary that doesn't even hardly gets noticed most of the time, which is the boundaries between Viola and the captain. Mm. The sea captain that she lands on the beach with in that he is respecting her boundaries. Here she is very likely, you know, the only woman. Even if some of the other sailors have made it alive, the odds of any of them being women are slim to none, who has just lost the protection of her brother. And nowhere do we get any inclination that the captain would take advantage of her or... You know, he's completely supportive. He's willing to help her create this illusion that she's a eunuch. And I feel like that boundary between them that he respects really supports Viola's character as being somebody of consequence, somebody who is smart and capable, but most importantly has agency. Viola is established as having agency right from the very get-go. You know, you almost assume that, of course, the captain turns his back while she's changing her clothes. Like, I've never Mm -hmm. seen one where the captain is trying to sneak a peek at her. (laughs) You know, like, that never freaking happens. So here's a boundary that's never even stated. And is such an important plot point, really, in terms of establishing Viola. So how do you find, when there are those kinds of boundaries in a script that are barely even stated, if I wanted to heighten that boundary as a director, how could I do that with physicality or with voice to show that the captain is really respecting her. I think that scene is one of my favorite scenes in the entirety of the play, largely because where I see the boundary set in that scene is in the command that Viola has of her voice and of her mind, because she's the one coming up with the plans. Right. And she's stating very clearly, she's stating very clearly 
this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? She's inviting him into a conversation about what might be possible in this new land. Tell me about who's here. Tell me what I need to know. She immediately, vocally, in the text, asks for what she needs, the information she needs, and makes a plan and invites someone to help her with that plan. And so I think something that is interesting in that scene is how does her physicality match that text, Mm -hmm. right? How much command does she have in her presence Mm -hmm. that would allow that captain to just immediately infer, I need to respect this person. And, or do we want to play with as a company, the sea captain thinking he might be able to, you know, Mm -hmm. woo this woman and then her voice stops him, right? What are the ways that we can play with what his intentions are and do they change Mm -hmm. or what she is demonstrating, which again is so solidly in the text is I need this. Who is this? Thank you so much, sir. You know, and, and then he's like, I'll help. I'm here to help. Um, So it's, it's that question of what changes in the scene if something changes or what is she projecting immediately both physically and and in her voice that says, I demand respect, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, as, as someone who was a young woman in various situations and, you know, in much less dire circumstances than Viola finds herself, obviously, but, you know, I, I have said that sort of thing to people, not exactly that thing, but Hey, I've got a plan and been completely shut down for it. You know, so I I just want to put out a a little bit of um, recognition and respect for all of us in those situations who have stated our intentions clearly and that we were just run over like a steam train by somebody who did not respect those boundaries. Yeah. But it you don't get those boundaries at all if you don't at least try to state them as Viola does very clearly. So, you know, she does that right. And then she does something else in the conversation that I find really interesting when he says that he saw her brother riding the waves, riding a mast on the waves. And, and uh, we won't get into all the fun sexual innuendo that that implies, but <laughs> it's there. Um, she gives him gold. She gives him money and he accepts it. And I feel like that helps establish a boundary right there. Um, you know, he doesn't say, oh, no, no, I, you know, I won't take this. Uh, just give me a kiss instead. He just takes the gold and puts it in his purse. And I, I think that that's perhaps an, um, might be an important part to play up um, more certainly than I have done in the past. It feels like such an inconsequential thing, but I wonder if it means more than we as 21st century people think of it because those kinds of money boundaries come up again. Like Festy always asking for money and appropriately he should be asking for money, but that creates a boundary immediately between him and anybody he's asking for money from. I think 
part of the money conversation also needs to be around class and what it says to that captain when she has that kind of money, what that means about her status. Mm -hmm. That, you know, when we're talking about Shakespeare's time, class is so central to how everyone interacts. And it goes back to what you were saying about Orsino and Olivia is how sort of radical her boundary is because of their class difference. Yes. And that in this moment with Viola and the captain, I wonder how much of the boundary is truly honored and, and we can show the captain to be an honorable man. Mm-hmm. Or another option, another telling is, oh, she must be kind of a big deal. I need to back off, right? So how is class playing into that moment? But then also one of the things that I think happens in that moment, speaking of those, these big words, right? Class gender (laughs) is that in that moment, I think he sees her as an equal and if anything, higher status than him, which as a shipwrecked woman says something. Yes. Right. So not only that he sees her as a higher class than him because she has money because of her background, but also that he respects her as an equal in that moment and actually says by the end of that scene, I would like to be your support. I would like Mm -hmm. to be in your employ, Mm -hmm. right? That that's a hierarchy that we're going to see as she becomes Cesario, right? As she becomes masculine in her presentation, how people respect her, not only for her presentation, but for how she commands that presentation. And so we're seeing it before she's in drag, we're seeing her be seen in that way, be seen as an equal by this man. Yes, or or even a little more. more. And, you know, I, I just kind of figure that a, a captain who's lost his ship probably a little on the vulnerable side. Um, You know, like, I I don't know, but I I can just imagine that if you lose enough ships as a captain, that that probably doesn't reflect well on you in terms of future employment. (laughs) Not great for your resume. Not great for your resume. (laughs) So... They they both need support in that situation, and so he is recognizing that um, that she might employ him, that she needs his help, he might need her help too, and that he is willing to make himself mute on mm-hmm. her behalf. That's pretty huge commitment right there to not say anything <laughs> to anyone ever. Oh my gosh. As a ship's captain, like, <laughs> like you, you go have a beer at the tavern and you can't tell this story. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, that's the other thing I, you know, as I was doing research on this play, you know, I, I recently taught this class to my fellow dramaturgs at Columbia University about this play. And one of the things that's fascinating, fascinating about that line is that 
the eunuch that we think we scholars, you know, mm-hmm. think that Viola is speaking to is the Turkish eunuch of the time, which is what most yes. people would think of. And Turkish eunuchs had as were were almost of a nobility, were mm-hmm. almost of that class, and had as their sidekicks often mutes. And so in that oh. line, in that line, he's not only saying, I will do this for you, but also I recognize exactly what you're asking for, and I will give you precisely what you're asking for. Oh, you are asking to be that seen. That's so cool. That is so cool, because we have talked about how Illyria was an actual place, and it was Islamic at the time, and how Olivia is following Islamic custom by having an all-female household. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, because this is Shakespeare, and because Elizabeth was still ruling, we end up seeing Elizabeth portrayed often as multiple female characters in the play. And in this case, you know, she sometimes she's Olivia, she can also be Viola here. You know, she Elizabeth also uh, lost her mother, lost her father, lost her brother, and then had to rule and had to resist uh, unwanted attentions from suitors and admirers throughout. And so I have also felt that this interaction between Elizabeth and the, uh, sorry, (laughs) Viola and the captain, that there has to be some context in terms of Elizabeth's relationships with her own captains, with her own explorers, which sometimes got quasi-romantic um, you know, was Shakespeare poking a little bit of fun at Elizabeth and her affection for her ship's captains? Um, it's certainly tempting to think so. Hard to imagine yeah. that his audiences would have missed that kind of connection if it was there mm-hmm. for sure. Wow, that's cool about the mute. So then what was the role of the mute for the eunuch in that situation? So it was, you know, I did very scant research. So if you're listening, (laughs) if there's anybody listening to this podcast, correct (laughs) me, please. Uh, But but what I read about it was that it was it was quite literally a right hand man. So part of the research I did was was really around would Viola as Cesario be carrying a sword? Why or why not? Uh And. And what would that mean? And would Viola have had any training as Viola in swordplay before this, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I found was that eunuchs in Turkey at the time or, or the, you know, the Turkish tradition mm-hmm. would have been noble enough to keep a sword at their hip. Mm. So if she's truly dressing as a eunuch using that, that role, she could and would have a sword at her hip. And the mute would have been a kind of a squire, right? A, a right-hand man who was there to fetch things, you know, help you out with whatever you might need, unarmed, right? Like most lower classes would have been unarmed, mm-hmm. but that the eunuch would have been armed. And so it's sort of a knight-squire relationship as far as the research that I have done. Got it. Oh, well, that is really fascinating. Thank you so much. So, sure. and then he does not, he doesn't show up again. In the play. So yep. 
Which is why some people think the the eunuch ruse disappears. I've I've talked to a lot of people oh, who are like, I don't think she actually keeps that. Uh, and there are there are allusions in all the sort of uh, medical discussions of genitalia that might lead one to believe that she throws off the idea of being a eunuch. But I think it's useful to us in terms of this relationship to think of her as taking on that that role that mantle and also in terms of the dueling that comes later which we're going to talk about another time yes that's, that's i think fun discussion the eunuch is a, is a useful disguise i think even though the idea of it and the captain's role is mute sort of drop out of the story i i wonder that about the eunuch i mean it's easily it's easy for me to picture the captain He's lived in the area, you know, he goes about his business or whatever. And there is certainly lines later that Orsino says that definitely implies that the eunuch facade is still in place. There are lines that Malvolio has where he says, you know, not no longer a peas cod, but not quite a man. Mm-hmm. You know, caught in between the two, which is all language for a eunuch. There's mm-hmm. the fact that Viola is considered a singer. She's going to sing for. Um, my poor brain. She's going to sing for Arsino. <laughs> and. You know, there, there's some suggestion that that charm, that ability for her as a musician of using her voice, all of that would have been informed by the fact that there were eunuchs even then who were castrated either fully or partially in order to retain a more youthful voice, in order to retain a, a higher pitched voice. And because there was that tradition at the time, I tend to think that that facade continues. And because I feel like, you know, going with the more Turkish Islamic understanding of uh, of a same-sex household, that if Orsino had thought that Cesario had a penis, he would not have sent them. I yeah. also don't think that Cesario would have been admitted to the household if Malvolio thought that Cesario had a penis. And I don't think that Olivia would have spoken to Cesario because she she wants to find out like like this has uh, Cesario has come up with a hack to Olivia's system of not letting any men in mm-hmm. she can't really accuse Cesario of being male and not being allowed in there if Cesario is a eunuch she has to really rethink this whole thing. So from my personal perspective, I feel like, yes, Cesario maintains that facade the whole time. I think there's also a tradition of eunuchs as being a confidant for nobles. Yes, 100%. And not being seen as competition for 
the women, and also as not being seen as competition in an ambitious kind of a way, because eunuchs aren't going to have kids that they're trying to provide a legacy for. Now, you know, obviously, there were plenty of very ambitious eunuchs that really weren't concerned about future generations in terms of amassing power and wealth. Nonetheless, <laughs> for Elizabethans at the time who were very obsessed with heredity and who is going to inherit the lands and the titles and a nation on the brink wondering if Elizabeth was ever going to declare an heir, all of that would have been very much uppermost in their minds. And so for all of that reason, I really continue to think of Viola Cesario as being somebody who is non-binary in as close a way as the Elizabethans had to think about that as the time, which was as a eunuch. Well, and I've definitely heard the term, you know, third gender used to describe eunuchs at this time. And so it does, in this conversation around boundaries, it brings up a lot of questions around what are gender boundaries oh, in this play. <laughs> and and how yes. does how does Viola subvert them? How does Antonio subvert them? Um, and also, it makes me think a lot about then what does it mean for Olivia to fall in love with a eunuch? What boundary yes. is she crossing or sort of what boundary that's been set for her is she crossing as she falls in love with Cesario, right? All of those are questions to ask as you as you establish the story you're telling, right? Absolutely. And that makes me want to go look for historical occurrences of of nobility, of queens who fell in love with their eunuchs. Mm -hmm. It must have happened. I'm sure it did. You know, eunuchs were often incredibly well-trained, as, as you pointed out. Often they could be very high class. They weren't necessarily low or class to start with, but even if they were, becoming a eunuch elevated them in a way that becoming, say, a, a priest might or, or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, gosh, that's a, that's a fun vein to think about that we haven't even explored. <laughs> I love finding those. So as we're thinking about gender and boundaries, um, I, I don't want to miss talking about Festy because mm -hmm. it is the fool's job to find boundaries and poke at them until they crack. That is their whole thing. And he, you know, his first scene that he comes in, first of all, he's talking to Mariah. And I loved that first interchange, how they are discussing things with each other. They're clearly having fun with the conversation. They, it feels to me like, in a sense, one of the most open conversations between people who seem to be equals certainly in that moment where they're alone talking together and being very clever. But he still, he pokes at her boundaries a little bit by kind of asking her about Toby. And she like right away shuts him down. She's not having any of that yeah. from the fool, <laughs> which I love because nobody else except Malvolio will shut him down. And then he goes too far, you know, which then, 
springs back on him later, obviously. But how do you feel about fools and clowns in general and that whole pushing of boundaries? If somebody is role-playing, has a part as a fool, how do you encourage them to show the testing of those boundaries? And then what do you do? I'm so curious. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I think to me, I want to point out the fact that what I find so interesting about the Festy Mariah relationship is, you know, I'm, I'm no Shakespeare expert, but it's one of the few times where a fool gets truly challenged by a woman, right? Specifically by a woman. And I find the ways that she can, you know, speaking about sword work, the ways that she can parry and deflect and, and it's just masterful. And I love to watch that scene when it's, you know, when it's done masterfully. And I think to me, when it comes to, again, this, this actor character boundary is to really, really talk about what those actor boundaries are between those two. So that within those boundaries, you can play. I think one of my favorite ways to choreograph, and it always depends on the actors you're working with, but is to say, let's map out what we cannot do and then play and then find things that feel natural and sort of have movement improvisation until we find a thing that from the outside looks as good as it feels from the inside, right? So with those two characters, I think it's super important that boundaries are on the table, that there's regular discussion about what those boundaries are if they've changed from rehearsal to rehearsal so that those actors can feel free within those characters to play because they are so playful with one another. They do parry and repost with jokes. They are equally matched in so many ways that we will feel and they will feel an immense discomfort if we don't give them the sandbox in which to play. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So So for me, for them, and for, I think, Festy in general, anyone that Festy interacts with, because he is the fool, because he is the clown, that actor has to have a really deep respect Mm -hmm. for his or her or their fellow actors. And, you know, sometimes when you have one actor who's interacting with a lot of people, especially physically, I will often keep a document of boundaries if the actors are comfortable with it so that that actor can refer to it because it's hard to keep track of everyone's different things, right? Like if someone feels comfortable or feels uncomfortable being touched in a certain place on their face, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So to keep track of those things Mm -hmm. to help that actor respect those boundaries. But once you've got the sandbox, then it's about, it's about leaning into the playfulness of that character and, and allowing the boundaries that are crossed to be character boundaries and not actor boundaries. Yeah, that's really, really valuable. And again, that separation between the actor and the character that gives you the time and the space to really explore the boundaries that the character has Mm -hmm. versus the ones, again, that the actor has. Because... For instance, I can imagine a scene between Mariah and Festy where she playfully slaps him on the ass. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Uh, I would not want to be slapped on the ass personally. (laughs) (laughs) I would not like that. (laughs) That's a strict boundary for you. We have found one. There it is. We have found one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, (laughs) but there it is. And I, but I can imagine if I was playing Festy and I thought, well, that would be really funny for the character. Maybe if I had enough padding on my butt, then I mm-hmm. wouldn't care. And Or if it was hidden somehow so that they're not actually, they're not touching, actually touching your butt. Yeah. They're touching somewhere else. They're touching your upper thigh or That's they're touching right. your lower back. That's right. There's, there's ways to mask things, too. If you, the actor, love the idea of a thing but do not like the physicality of it, part of the job of a choreographer is to have ways in their toolbox yes to tell that story without doing the action and goodness right? if we could not do that with swordplay then we couldn't do swordplay at all exactly <laughs> we're we're not going to stab each other on stage thank goodness so we don't have to smack each other's asses on stage if we don't want exactly. to exactly and we can apply those same thoughts to romantic or affectionate gestures as well that's a really mm-hmm. really useful insight so then we get to Malvolio. And Olivia really condemns Malvolio in the first act when she says, Malvolio, you are sick with self-love. And self-love was a particularly egregious crime at that point in Elizabethan culture. It was putting yourself above other people. It was kind of an egomania, what we would consider narcissism at this point. And because it was putting love for yourself also over your love for God. So it even had all these kind of spiritual ramifications. And it was something that you could be condemned to hell for. So... When he continues through the play to continue to exhibit that self-love, I think that that's a really interesting boundary. Less person, I'm not happy with how I said that. Um, I think that that depicts Malvolio as a villain precisely because he does not recognize boundaries in other people. He doesn't recognize the boundary between him and Olivia. He does not recognize the boundary that protects Festy from him. He doesn't recognize the boundary that Mariah has in terms of being uh, Olivia's confidant and, you know, closest female friend in a situation where she's lost everything. Instead, he just walks around talking about what? How he's going to trespass over everyone's boundaries. (laughs) You know, it's, I find Malvolio so interesting and the way you've portrayed him so interesting because I am realizing more and more as I consume media with a a consent lens that so often the people who we feel are deeply villainous or problematic are people who disregard consent. 
mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, I'm, I'm was watching this show and there's a character who with her words, right, can make you do something you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And that that makes us so deeply uncomfortable because crossing those boundaries is so deeply violating. And so something that I find fascinating about how you've characterized Malvolio is that that's the kind of villain he is. He's so self-absorbed that he walks all over people's boundaries Mm -hmm. with zero regard. And yet, I think something that you can play up in Malvolio, or that I would want to if I were working on a production, is his own boundaries, right? So self-absorbed that his boundaries are like, stone walls and if you cross them for a moment you are a villain right and so I think a lot about maybe the actor playing Malvolio is comfortable with all sorts of touch but the character Malvolio you cannot touch him anywhere no or he will freak out and so what is what is that wrestling within that character of boundary making versus boundary respecting Mm mm-hmm could be a fun thing to play up. It totally could be. And yet he's the only character that ends up with a really cold, hard stone boundary. He ends Mm -hmm. up in prison. And in a sense, it's really a prison of his own making because he has trespassed so thoroughly on everybody else's boundaries that the only thing they can think to do is put him in a cell. And I think there's a way to make him not so easy a villain as we watch the other characters trespass on his boundaries, mm-hmm. right? And and sort of use him and tear him down that we want to see that happen because he's doing what he's doing. But we also feel like, well, but isn't it so similar to the way he is, right? Mm-hmm. So if if we want to use boundaries as our way of describing and dealing with Malvolio there is this sort of, well, you're using his tools to take him down. And what does that say? And what does that mean? Uh, is, is fascinating and makes him, to me, a sort of more nuanced villain if we start to feel a little bad, right? A little sorry for him, a little pity for this man who is so self-aggrandizing. Yes. It, it's, it makes his downfall just more complicated and I think more interesting. I I agree. And I never feel sorry for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very fair. And again, again to your point of however <laughs> you want to play with this play, play with this play. Well, I feel like and and part of this part of my response to that is that Like I have seen in Shakespeare discussion forums, people who are convinced that Festy is the villain of the play Mm -hmm. and that Malvolio does not deserve the treatment that he gets. And I, you know, I, I, I disagree. (laughs) Let's just say that I disagree. Uh, I think that it's, difficult for people to understand what being turned out of a household would have meant in Shakespeare's time. That Mm -hmm. Malvolio is threatening to turn uh, 
uh, Mariah and Festy out into the cold in January, basically to freeze and starve. Now, you know, they could probably find, you know, a place in Orsino's court, possibly, but maybe not. You know, not if Orsino thought that Olivia had found these people lacking or untrustworthy, if Malvolio had been able to somehow convince Olivia that, you know, that these people were bad people, then they could literally have starved to death or frozen to death somewhere. So I feel like a little context in that sense helps to understand why Festi hates Malvolio, why Mariah hates Malvolio. They are literally frightened for their lives. And, you know, the the fact that Malvolio leaves on his own at the end, nobody turns Malvolio out. He just goes away. Uh, it's on him. And he can probably go get work as a steward someplace else, someplace where they'll appreciate him a little more, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe he should go work for a man, would be my suggestion, so he doesn't get so confused. Um, could help, could help. Yeah. Um, and there are other, you know, boundaries that we haven't talked about at all are religious boundaries, which are a big part of the play. Uh, he's referred to as a kind of a Puritan. And, mm -hmm. you know, Aggie Cheek, who has some of the best lines in the play, says, oh, if I thought I was a Puritan, I would beat him. And Toby says, but why, man? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> At which point that's Shakespeare going, you know, coming right up to the point and then just backing off, you know, just going, yep. oh, yeah, let's beat up all the Puritans. Uh, I don't know why. I'm not going to give you a reason. But we know it's because the Puritans were trying to get his theaters shut down. And, shut down. And again, yep. you know, the Elizabethans would have been well aware of that. They wouldn't have need that explained to them why anybody would want to beat a Puritan. But... You know, Puritan culture at the time was very much about not appearing as something that you weren't, not appearing wealthier, being sort of self-effacing in terms of uh, presentation and all of that. And Malvolia has stepped all over all those boundaries as well. Um, yeah. You know, there's a reason Malvolio means evil one. It's it's not a nuanced role in that sense. Now, uh, I can certainly imagine someone in Malvolio's position, uh, you know, just being like, oh, my God, my lady has these terrible relatives, and they come and they drink all her wine, and they make a bunch of noise, and they embarrass her, and they are just a pain in the ass. And, you know, really, these people are terrible. I mean, I can totally feel for a steward in that situation. And he is not unreasonable in saying that they should tone it down in the kitchen instead of being a bunch of drunken louts. But mm -hmm. he he goes too far when he threatens to have them all thrown out. You know, he could just demand the key to the alcohol and lock it up and walk off in a huff. But no, he threatens to have them all thrown out. But again, well, and that, you know, if you want to play Malvolio as a sympathetic character, I support you. I support you 100%. But, you know, uh, this is my podcast, and so I get to say. 
Well, and that feels like, a, you know, a theme and why we're having this conversation about boundaries across the board is this idea of what does it mean to go too far, right? Yes. What is acceptable? And then what is it to go too far? And I, I think it also brings up for me something I always tell actors or when I'm advocating for actors, one of the things I say is you have every right to ask why. If your director says, you know, mm-hmm. my Malvolio is a, is a villain, mm-hmm. you know, 100% the end. <laughs> you as an actor have every right to say, why? Where, what, why do you see that? What do you need from that? What does that mean? So that you can find a way, if you think of him as a sympathetic character, to find that compromise and find the why of your director's vision. You have every right to ask why. Absolutely. And honestly, as a director, it is my very favorite question. And I am thrilled and constantly amazed, uh, you know, to the point of absolute joy when my actors come forth with, with their own perspective that enlarges mine because Mm -hmm. this is why we do it to to find more and more depth because the depth is there every line can be taken you know two three four five a dozen different ways can be played a million different ways and there has never been a production where my actors didn't bring much more to the final product than I could ever have possibly hoped to envision. So if you have a good director, if you have a director that's working in a collaborative space, they're going to want to hear that why, because that's going to give them an excuse (laughs) to tell you all this research that they did. (laughs) And they might find, I think one of my favorite moments in the rehearsal room is when that why questions comes into the space from whoever it comes from. And the person who's being asked has to talk through their reasoning and might find cracks in their reasoning Uh, or might find opportunities. It's great. It's delightful. Yes. It's, uh, it's the funnest part of the process for me, other than hearing wonderful actors say these lines over and over again, that I never get tired of hearing that poetry it's it's like asmr for me it just (laughs) puts me in an altered state and makes me so very happy Um, and you know for that chance to live in this world because isn't that why we do this isn't that why we're talking about this now is because we get to be in that make-believe world again and feel all those feelings It, it just I don't know if I could just do Twelfth Night for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be pretty happy. It really, it's, it's such isn't an that, expansive play. It's that, such an expansive play. It makes play. me feel a little nutty, though, that I'd like be happy with that one, <laughs> with that one play. But we're going to do Midsummer Night's Dream next, and I love that play too. And uh, then we'll we'll continue to explore all the comedies because I just I love the comedies so much. All right, so then. Um, Let's see, we've got, I think, well, we've got a few more, I mean, the whole play is boundaries, but the boundary between Toby and Andrew Aguicheek. And Toby, oh, now this is interesting to think about. Toby sees no boundaries. He's even kind of a jerk at the end, like, 
why doesn't Toby become the villain? Like, why do we still love Toby? <laughs> why? You know, <laughs> I have such a hard time with Toby. I really dislike Toby. I don't Toby. blame you. I don't blame you. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things, right, where, again, the separation of, at this point, it's not even character and actor, but it's character and story is I love what Toby is for the story of Twelfth Night. Right. I love because because I because I hate him, right? Because uh -huh. I dislike this character, he adds such complication. I hate what he does to Aggie Cheek. I love Aggie Cheek. I have such a soft spot spot in my same, heart for Aggie Cheek. Same. Uh, and you know, I I can talk about that dual letter for the rest of my life and be happy. But the <laughs> I I really I dislike Toby, and I I do think it's because. He stomps all over people. I don't, you know, I don't think he is a good man in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is, it's funny because I love what he does to the play. I love what his, the, the sort of meat that his character gives the play, but I do not like him. Well, yeah, he's essential as a, as a plot device. Uh, but would you want him as a roommate? No, probably not. <laughs> no. And yet there is that dichotomy, right? Because here's Mariah, who is arguably one of the smartest of Shakespeare's characters ever. And she chooses him. Yep. And she chooses him, even though technically their rank is not that different. Uh, gentlewomen were often nobility, you know, the, the fifth daughter, there's no dowry left. Okay, you go work for, you know, your cousin Olivia or whatever. He has no money. He's clearly not all that well respected by anybody who knows him. Why does she choose him? You know, what does she see? Is he different in private? Some people are. Mm -hmm. You know, does she see him sober once in a while? <laughs> does well, and does I, she think he's funny? <laughs> does, is he really good in bed? You know, what? what is, if you were playing Mariah, what excuse would you find to love yeah. Toby as Mariah? Well, and I think that's something, you know, in my in my history of acting training, one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got was never turn your nose, never look down your nose at your character. That's what it was. Never look down your nose at your character. Oh, that is such good advice. Say that again. <laughs> so one of the best pieces of advice I have gotten in my acting training is never look down your nose at your character. Thank you. Because truly, truly, I think that's one of the most exciting sort of collaborative dramaturgical conversations to have is why do you, why does this character love this character? Why do you think you, the actor who is embodying this person, why do you think Mariah loves him? Because the answers you will get will be the most nuanced, interesting be because if you have an actor who's not looking down their nose at Toby and you have an actor who's not looking down their nose at Mariah, 
those actors together will find what the meat of their relationship is. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think everything you suggested is possible. I think humor, they're both very invested in humor. I think that Mm -hmm. could be a big, you know, I think co-conspirators and pranks and things like that. That could be pretty bonding, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And also this idea that who is Toby when he's not performing Toby-ness. Oh, that is such a good question. Who is that? Yeah. And so that could be who Mariah is in love with. And again, these are the conversations that I love to have with actors in third person because Mm -hmm. you can talk about things like, what is their sex life? Yes. Right? And as an actor, you can say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about that. Great. We don't have to pivot to what is their humor life. Yes. But if, if we can talk about that, let's talk about them. Let's talk about what they do with each other in private, whether that's sexual or romantic or otherwise, because we, we can talk about them, yes. right? We can talk about them separately from us or what we think or what we feel. Uh, and it can, it can really enliven how they interact in space together. If both actors are on the same page that Mariah and Toby have a very healthy sex life, mm-hmm. Then we ha- then we continue the conversation with okay, so how does that how do they interact how what are their sneaky things that they do with each other when no one else is looking on stage right what can we play with yes given that that thing that yes. we have come to together and certainly you know the the physical relationship between Mariah and Toby is so important to decide at the outset how much are they going to touch how much are they going to imply that they had sex or the opposite. If you want to make it clear in that production that they have not had any sex, then that needs to be articulated really clearly with body language because it's too vague in the text. (laughs) Otherwise, (laughs) thank you, Shakespeare, for making that so freaking vague that the actors have those choices. I think those are really exciting choices that those actors get to make. And gosh, wouldn't you love to see the epilogue play of Toby and Mariah in their married life? Yes, please. <laughs> Somebody write that Someone, for me, please. If you haven't already, or tell us where it is so that we can read it. Oh my gosh, I would love to see that because I, I, I love those characters. Um, and certainly, you know, who among us has not fallen in love or fallen in lust with somebody we knew was not good for us or could be embarrassing socially and for whatever reasons that might entail, you know, they could be difficult psychological reasons where that's the kind of, uh, you know, father or brother or uncle that we grew up with and we're like, well... I don't like this dysfunction, but it's sure familiar. You know, that happens a lot. Um, Who among us has not gone, oh, my God, this guy is a jerk, but the dick, oh, my God, is so good. You know, (laughs) it happens. These things happen to us because we're human beings. And then again, who among us has not thought, well, oh, I could change that. Yeah, and been wrong. Or he might grow. He might grow. You know? I can make him be sober. I can, you know, not that Mariah in this play gives any indication that she's 
going to do any of those things, has any of those feelings, but there's just such a range of things that she could have where she isn't necessarily completely accepting of Toby. You know, we can have those nuances because they happen in real life. So then we've got, as and as we both adore, Aggie Cheek. Yes. And so much. being a socially awkward human myself, incapable of knowing how to flirt at all, in a way I really identify with Aggie Cheek. I mean, he's really writing down like all these smooth lines that Viola Cesario has for wooing. And he's like, oh, odors. Yes, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> That's so and I just love, I love the, this, you know, the sort of archetype you might say of the bumbling knight, right? Yes. I just love because he's so, he has so much heart and he believes so deeply in doing what is right. He's so sincere. So sincere. Completely in a play full of insincere people. I mean, even yes. Antonio has some has a little facade that he maintains has you know a little bravado but not aggie cheek and no you know and his his name means feverish cheeks and you know of course that's a butt joke too you know we're not just talking about the cheeks on this face and so like even his name is mocking him and yeah. uh, you know he has no boundaries at all no. And, and it's almost, he's one of those characters who you sense that he has no boundaries because he, he trusts that he doesn't need them, yes. right? He trusts everyone and yes. he trusts. So he, he's, he's so vulnerable without realizing how vulnerable he is. And it's heartbreaking and hilarious. It's, it's such comedic genius while also being so full of heart. It really is. And uh, one of our other uh, uh, commentators, I think it was John Bean, we were discussing uh, a lot of this the other day. And, oh, God, <laughs> I'm so glad I can edit out my, my brain <laughs> blips. Oh, crap. All right, Aggie Cheek, Boundaries, Sincerity. He trusts everyone. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Uh, John Bean was saying that part of the reason that he trusts everyone is could be because he's had such a life of privilege. Yes. That he's, and then again, we're getting to those class boundaries and the different boundaries that different classes have. You know, he's a knight, and much like Toby, who, you know, doesn't see boundaries. Why? What boundaries? You know, and the fact that in that sense that Toby is stepping all over all these boundaries, to my mind, he can be forgiven a little bit because he's not seeing boundaries because he's never had any imposed on him. He's mm -hmm. completely oblivious to the fact that he's putting Mariah at great risk mm -hmm. by following this plan. I feel like it's telling that at the end that Fabian takes responsibility for the pranks against Malvolio. Mm -hmm. 
Toby doesn't <laughs> say nope say anything, but Fabian is not of Toby and Aggie Cheek's class. He's clearly much more on a par with Festy or Mariah. It's never even really clear what his position is there. Uh, but he is the one who speaks up for Mariah at the end and really saves Mariah. And I think that's all due to class consciousness and, and boundaries that that's very likely. Now, again, if you want to play it, that it's just because Toby is too drunk to remember to figure that shit out, more power to you. I totally support you. But I think that's a nuance that, that can be brought to those characters if you want to. Um, I also think, you know, in terms of their their sort of privileged background, I think something, and I can't remember, I believe if I remember correctly, that Aggie Cheek has bought his knighthood, but Toby is born into it. Is that correct? I have not heard that. Yeah, so I, I was reading, when I was reading about you know, the, the, the duel and swordplay ah. and what they would have known. Aggie Cheek is a, a sort of put on that he's, he, and I, the way I imagine it in my sort of dramaturgical telling is that he's so excited to be a knight, <laughs> right? Like he, he wants to be chivalrous. He wants to oh, fight by the dueling code. He wants that. to listen to everything Toby says. He wants to listen to everything Toby says so that he gets it right. And, and it's, again, you could play that as he's putting on knighthood mm-hmm. in, in this sort of self-aggrandized way, or you could play it as he's just really excited to be a knight. And so one of the things I think about with that, with the idea that Toby crosses every boundary, Ayuchik has no boundaries, is this idea of, again, making sure that the actors know each other's boundaries very well. Yes. Because I think something you could fall into with the character of Aguchik if you play him truly sort of wide-eyed, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, is that that actor can get stepped on mm. in the room. And so I think something to be cautious of with any character who, who maybe has that sort of naivete is to make sure that the conversations around any physical actions are really thought through and and collaborative between those two actors so mm-hmm. that they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that way your Aggie cheek doesn't actually feel like they are being stepped on yes. in these moments. And all of these things, you know, I think we talked about this, this play is so expansive and has so much room for conversation and choices and, and discussions and collaboration. You can't possibly do all of this ahead of a rehearsal schedule. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> But as these things come up mm-hmm. and as you talk about them, you know, what are the ways that you are sort of telling a really exciting multi-layered story about boundaries while at the foundation underneath it all really being thoughtful and respectful in the room of what the actor's boundaries need to be to be able to tell that exciting, nuanced, multi-layered story? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, and I don't want to miss anything important. So I'm thinking about um, Sebastian's willingness to just marry Olivia. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell, Sebastian? <laughs> Have you no boundaries? <laughs> and he does at least kind of wonder, is she crazy? Nah, I don't think so. I'll marry her. <laughs> And that's one of those conversations that I think, again, right, 
class comes into play there, right? This is a good marriage. Yes. A good marriage. So is it is it a marriage of convenience? Is it mm-hmm. a marriage of... Also, if you play that the Antonio-Sebastian relationship is romantic and is not one-sided Antonio to Sebastian, but is mutual, yes. is, is she a beard, right? Is this a, a marriage not only of oh. class convenience, is it also a marriage of, sure, I'll marry you to be able to keep my relationship with Antonio and not have it be questioned right there's there's so many oh there's sort gosh, of like this yes. domino ripple effect of every choice you make affecting the other choices and you know i had i mean I, i'll admit like I, honestly i think she should marry viola and <laughs> you know, yes please clearly yes please you know orsino doesn't deserve viola obviously. no i agree and you know i can't help but think that after viola really gets to know Orsino that she might be like, eh. <laughs> He's all right. I'm going to go hang out with Olivia now and and <laughs> and uh, Sebastian and Antonio and, and, you know, we'll have a nice household together. Um, you know, in my mind, in, in my fantasies, that's what happens. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, and I think it's fascinating, right? Like it's it's a comedy, and it ends in a marriage, but they don't actually get married. But they don't actually get married, <laughs> isn't that so? Cool? So something to think about, you know, as you're thinking about physicality yes. in these characters is, and again, right? What is why do we make theater if not to tell great stories and have a good time and touch people in real ways, right? Yes. So. One of the things I imagine is what if in that final moment, everyone's on stage, is there a sly handhold between Sebastian and Antonio? Is there a sly sort of touch on the back between Viola and Olivia Mm -hmm. that makes us think that when we leave this space, this public moment, things are going to go a little differently here on out and they might not get married, right? What is, what can we play with in the physicality of that moment that tells a story that that we find enticing and exciting and maybe a little bit radical or maybe a little bit sort of boundary breaking, even in the ways that we connect which characters with whom at the mm-hmm. end? Absolutely. And that, to me, like is that final scene is so just so important for the whole takeaway, for the whole play. And um, I also, I recognize that we did not get into the boundaries between Viola and Orsino. And there's a reason for that. I want to save that for our gender discussion because I feel like that is just so intertwined. (laughs) We can't can't really separate that. So listeners, I recognize that there are some relationships we did not discuss the boundaries between, and we will explore all of those later. Well, Cha, I have so loved this discussion with you. And I was so excited when we even thought about having the topic to discuss. Uh, Let's talk about... um, how our listeners can get a hold of you. Absolutely. Uh, So obviously when you're listening to this, new things might be happening, but the ways you can always find me 
are uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Cha of All Trades. And my website is callmecha.com. So pretty simple. Uh, find me there. You can contact me through my website and see a little bit more of the work I do. That is phenomenal. And Cha will be back when we're talking about dueling and fighting and all of that. There will be um, we will talk about that in the scenes that they happen, and I suspect we'll probably do a breakout episode, too, at some point, just because it, it's such a fun topic and an engaging one. So as we leave, what would you like to tell our listeners, our our actors and our directors, and, and you know, those of us that will never perform, perhaps in a Twelfth Night play, what do you love about this play? What makes you go back to it over and over? And what makes you drag all your friends to see it as you try to explain to them in breathless excitement what's going on in every scene? <laughs> you know, I think to me, I live my life in relationships. And I think this play does relationships with so much fun and depth and excitement. And I think specifically the relationships that branch out from Viola are what keep me coming back. I think she is one of the greatest heroines of certainly Shakespeare's canon of perhaps literature. And I think there is so much to be mined in her and her relationships and so much more that we can bring to this work than even Billy Shakes himself intended or saw or could have thought of. And so I just invite people to dig in and have a good time. That sounds perfect. I love that. Thank you so much, Cha. We'll talk to you Thank again. Thank you. I've loved being here. Thank you so much. <laughs>